We're going to begin tonight with the chanting of the refuges and precepts. Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Udang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Sangam Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Udang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Tamang Saranang Gachami Dutiampi Sangam Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Udang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Tamang Saranang Gachami Tatiampi Sangam Saranang Gachami Anati Pata Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Adina Dana Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Abramacharya Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Musawada Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Sura Maria Majapamadatana Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Vikala Bojana Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Nacha Gita Vadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vibhusanatana Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramini Sika Padang Samadhyami Idam Me Silam Magapalanyanasa Pachayo Hotu
the world around us and within us is constantly teaching us when we have the eyes to see, the ears to listen, and are able to see without distorted perception, to really allow the mind to relax and receive experience as it is. The lessons come in all kinds of forms, all kinds of ways. One of the lessons that's so evident as we practice here during this time is that of impermanence. the, The season, this time of year, it's there right before our eyes when we're outside looking, seeing, Seeing the, the leaves changing, turning color, falling. Seeing plants decay, wither, and die. It's a great support to our understanding of your impermanence, a fact of life. When we are able to translate that experience to know that the laws that govern nature are the same laws that govern this mind and body. We see it in the world around us and we may not yet fully realize that this truth of impermanence, the fact of impermanence, is an understanding that can lead us to liberation. The implications of this understanding can transform our lives and the way we live them. There has been, over time, many great teachers that have hammered on this truth. Uh, I know my teachers have done it to me, <laughs> so I, um, you know, I know there's really truth in this. Uh, you know, they keep pointing towards this truth. Suzuki Roshi, a great Zen master, he once was a- asked to put Buddhism in a nutshell, and he responded by saying, impermanence. Now it really um, is such an important teaching. One of Ajahn Chah's, a very revered Thai forest monk, his famous lines was, it's not permanent, it's not certain. And he says that he said it so many times that some people would leave because they wanted to find something certain. They were looking for some peace that things will be a certain way. And as they'd leave, he'd say, well, they'll be back. (laughs) We have to find out for ourselves. And there's another teacher who lived in the 19th century. He's a Tibetan teacher. His name was Patro Rinpoche. He wrote a very wonderful book, Words of My Perfect Teacher. And in this book, he too, he hammered on impermanence. Um, And he quoted from someone named Geshe Patoa, who 
was once asked if a person could only choose one practice out of, you know, there's so many different practices one can do that are offered in the different traditions and Buddhist teachings. But if one, a person could only do one practice, what would the most important practice be? Contemplation of impermanence. And Geshe uh, Potawa says, at first meditation on impermanence makes you develop faith. In the middle, it's conducive to diligence in your practice. And in the end, it helps you give birth to wisdom. The Buddha was once asked by Ananda, his attendant. He, Ananda said, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dharma in brief. Wouldn't you have loved to have asked the Buddha that? <laughs> and you can imagine just sitting, waiting for that response, of what it would be. The Buddha responded by giving a short discourse on impermanence. At the time of the Buddha's death, you know, the end of this life of many years of searching, realizing, and sharing his wisdom. As he laid there, about to pass away, he said, with the light of perfect wisdom, dispel darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Awaken through heedfulness. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. In his last words to us, must be something in it, huh? And yet, you know, we look at our lives, and in many ways we know it, we see it. You know, you're not surprised when you walk outside and the leaves are falling. You're not surprised when day turns to night, night turns to day. We're not surprised at so many things in life. And yet, fully realizing this has the potential to release our hearts from suffering. I'd like to share an enlightenment song that comes from a nun who lived in the time of the Buddha. Her name was Mitakali, and before she ordained, it was said that she was very angry and difficult, very self-centered. And she actually ordained upon hearing the Satipatthana Sutta, and this is, you know, the Sutta out of which this practice that we're doing here comes. And she was, in many ways, just like us. She was one of the people who didn't get fully enlightened upon hearing the Buddha utter some phrase that she actually had to practice. She spent many years, years of struggle, probably like some of us. (laughs) So this is her poem of enlightenment. And I really wanted to share it because it so clearly expresses what was happening in her mind upon realization. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, 
I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. It sounds so simple. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. Well, we sit here all day and we watch these same elements of mind and body rise and pass away again. Can we stand up and be completely free? Maybe some. I don't know. I'll make no assumptions. <laughs> but quite likely, many of us can't or aren't in a place of being completely free. So through this, we can see that to have just a conceptual, ordinary understanding of impermanence isn't enough, even though it's this great truth, that we have to be able to live our lives from this place, live with the understanding of this truth. And that understanding comes through our direct experience, an intuitive understanding of this truth of impermanence. In our lives, it's quite likely that it at times is a convenient truth where uh, when we have unpleasant experience and it passes away, we're happy for this truth. You know, when it's our knee pain, back pain, when it's thoughts that we don't like and they cease, when it's somebody who's difficult for us to maybe on retreat even see and we don't see them, there can be a happiness in the truth of impermanence. But this being okay with it has its limits. It's not okay when it's a sense of a stable, deep concentration, and then, for whatever reasons, it changes, and we keep getting distracted. It's not okay when someone who has been very dear to us in our lives 
suddenly disappears, is no longer present. It's not okay when it's something in our world that we've been banking on for security, for a sense of happiness, something that keeps us feeling safe, and then it changes. You know, speaking about all of the changing colors, you know, which on one level are so beautiful, so touching. One fall I had the re- real reflection on this of you know, driving along, seeing these colors, and then I looked at my skin, and I saw all these brown spots coming from aging. And, you know, it wasn't so beautiful <laughs> when it was on my skin. You know, there was a contraction that happened. Mm. So we don't always live easily with this truth of impermanence. And, you know, there can be the wanting to deny it, avoid it, uh, not wanting not to see it. And it can often happen that when experience is pleasant, the way we like it, that it's so, it's so easy to believe this is how it is. This is how it's going to stay. You know, in our practice, we see it over and over again in those just how we like it sittings. And, you know, oh, now I've got it. I understand. I mean, it's so easeful. What, you know, that it's like, what was the problem? It's gone. You know, the struggle's gone. And the mind, subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, oh, yeah. It'll stay this way now. Now, this is the exception. But it's not the exception. It will change. This not understanding impermanence comes about because we live with the illusion of continuity when we don't have wise attention, when there isn't careful observation of what's unfolding. You know that when we don't look closely there isn't the recognition of just how quickly things change. And so it takes on this appearance of being continual, continuous. And it gives the illusion of permanence. You know, this is one of the distortion of perceptions that I spoke about last week. And so to really begin to see impermanence, we examine it, not an overlay of, I mean, we don't need to create impermanence, it's there. But what happens is when awareness begins to steady, then this is what's revealed. This is what's seen. 
you know, as simple as uh, being with our knee pain. And, you know, at first it's something solid, tight. It feels like uh, it's just one pain. And then when the mind is relaxed and steady with the experience, we begin to see there's all kinds of sensations there. There's nothing stable in it. It's all changing. And, you know, so we do this not just with body sensations, but we do it with everything that arises in our experience. And this really helps to inform us, gives us information that's useful, and it's coming directly out of our experience. It's really important work because when we have lived by, you know, trying not to see impermanence, by really just continuing to look for what will give us a sense of safety, what will give us a sense of permanence, that one day that will be shattered, that will be broken because everything, all conditioned experience, is impermanent. And so, in our practice, we see both the, the way experiences arise and disappear, we also will come in contact with our reactions to this. Because we, you know, it tends to be that there is a lot of disease with impermanence. Because, you know, on one level, it's totally understandable. Because if we are identifying with experience, and it's so unstable, then any sense of happiness, any sense of self that's hanging on that, is going to be rattled in the face of this fact of life. And the mind has all these stories all these ideas of what would happen if we didn't hold on, what would happen if this seemingly stable ground becomes unstable. And they're just ideas, they're just concepts. It's not the truth of the way things are. And that's something we need to recognize. In our practice, we will, you know, at times the scene of impermanence can be so strong, we have a sense of, you know, just taking a step and the ground falling away from beneath our feet. That we, there's this real sense that there's nothing stable there. And of course the mind, because in the past it was looking for stability through experience, will have ideas, but they're not true. And we need to see the concepts we have about needing security in these experiences and to know they're just concepts, to know they're just ideas. There's consequences to not seeing impermanence. One consequence is that we take our lives for granted. We uh, 
I mean, just look at being here on retreat. It's easy to just take for granted there'll be an end to the retreat. Take for granted when we get up in the morning, there'll be an end to the day. We take for granted that time will continue in the way that it has. You know, I've seen when I've been doing long retreats, you know, getting up in the morning, there's a bit of a struggle, uh, and just this sense of, oh, well, I won't really apply myself today. Tomorrow I'll feel better, and then I'll apply. You know, there's this, this taking for granted that there is a tomorrow. I once had a teacher who said this over and over again. He said, every day I tell you to wake up, and every day you say tomorrow. When I was with him, I didn't really see that. You know, I listened to it. But very shortly after I left the community where he was, I was very sick. And, you know, as I was getting sicker and sicker, you know, I kept imagining that I would live. At first of all, it was for, you know, another month. And then it was for another couple of weeks. And then another week. And then one day... It was just this feeling like, today's the day. Today's the day I'm going to die. And at that time, I had just a few friends around me. And so I really noticed I would say something, and their response would be, oh, tomorrow. And I could see this way of postponing. And I was laying there just feeling like, don't have tomorrow. This is what I have right now. And it had a very profound effect on me. You know, obviously I didn't die. I'm still here. <laughs> and uh, But for a long time, people would, as happens in life, ask me to make plans. And at first, when people would talk about something in the future, my mind would go into a gap. I was like, I didn't know how to do it. How do you make plans? It seemed like writing a novel. And then I realized that I just simply had to be ready to abandon whatever plans I made should circumstances change. But it was very profound to taste this. And we prob- you know, probably many of us have had similar experiences where there is just some strong striking of impermanence. And sickness, you know, uh, feeling that death is close is definitely a way that really wakes us up out of complacency. And it helps us to arrive in the present moment. There was once a famous sage who was asked where all his wisdom came from. And he responded by saying, I live as a man who, when he wakes up in the morning, doesn't know if he will be alive in the evening. Just noticing in your time here, is there a tendency 
to take the future for granted. As if there is a tomorrow. And this isn't to throw us into fear, anxiety, grasping at this moment. We can really just recognize that that thought of the future is just a thought of the future. But it is in this moment that the potency is. This is from Nagarjuna, a South Indian monk, philosopher and mystic. He says, Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous that we wake up living still. It's interesting with impermanence to look and see in our experience where we tend to lapse into a belief of permanence. It may be different for each of us, but there is some common aspects of experience. One is that of relationship. We live in a world of interconnectedness. Our lives are made up of many different relationships. There can be people on the periphery that we come in contact with. They come and they go, and this is okay. But then there can also be people whom are very dear to us, that it's very it's much more difficult to accept this truth of impermanence. We find that in the midst of the nourishment of these relationships, we again think this is something reliable, something that we will always be able to turn to, that brings stability to our lives and will continue to be so. But then change happens. And the change comes in many different ways. It could be simply our children grow up and leave home. It could be through death. It could be through people changing, partners changing, having different needs. If we have been hanging on to that relationship. In some way, believing it will always be there for us, we become devastated with this change. It brings great grief, sorrow. And we often tend to take it personally, that something's gone wrong, It's some mistake. 
and we suffer immensely in the face of it. One aspect that happens in these relationships is that when someone has been dear to us, has been a central part in our lives, and you know, sometimes that might not even be that the person's around a lot, but just the, you know, knowing that they're alive in the world can bring great comfort. When there's gone, there's loss. And many times, because we haven't understood impermanence, we haven't practiced, allowed the mind to register this sense of loss, we become broken by it. This doesn't have to be the case. This loss will be there. It is a change in conditions. There is an absence. But when we understand impermanence, we know this is the way of things. I'd like to just share something from the life of the Buddha because he had this wisdom. He had this understanding. It's said that at the time of the death of his two chief disciples, who were said to be like his left and his right arm, that he addressed the Sangha. He said, Bhikkhus, this assembly appears to me empty now that Sariputta and Moggallana have attained final Nibbana. This assembly was not empty for me earlier. He also went on to say, It is amazing on the part of the Tathagata, that's how he referred to himself, that when such a pair of disciples has attained final Nibbana, there is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata. He experienced this loss, but there was no sorrow or lamentation. His understanding was so deep. He went on to say, May what is born come to be, conditioned and subject to disintegration, not disintegrate. That is impossible. He could live his life from this place of understanding. I put that out just as a potential, you know, to know that that is possible in, by understanding impermanence, that we can face loss without being broken by it, knowing that this is in accordance with natural laws. But it's also quite likely that we are still in a process of this understanding. And then I'd like to share another piece from the suttas that comes from Ananda. And this was said, spoken by Ananda after the Buddha died. And this was a really big year in the Buddhist world. We had the death of Sariputta and Moggallana, the two chief disciples of the Buddha. There was also a beloved king named Pasanadi, 
who died within that year, and the Buddha passed away. And so to Ananda, these were the central figures in his life. No, the, the, the people that were near and dear to him, that maybe there was this sense of reliability upon. You know, as I was reading this today, I just was looking in my own world, you know, and the image I had was as if suddenly all my teachers died, <laughs> my fellow teachers. You know, <laughs> it would be profound. <laughs> I'd have to do all the work. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it would be profound. <laughs> and so, um, this is what Ananda said. He said, My companions, companions have passed away. The master, too, is gone. There is no friendship now that equals this. Mindfulness directed to the body. The old ones now have passed away. The new ones do not please me so much. Today I meditate alone, like a bird gone to its nest. He turned to his practice, his nest. This is what we can all turn to. In moments where loss is strong, coming back to our nest. You know, it's not going to be helpful if we think, oh, I shouldn't feel this. You know, I should understand impermanence. But we just turn to our practice. And now, in our practice, it may not be that we're facing such a big loss as the loss of a loved one. And so it is the time where we can really practice with loss in any way. Any way that it occurs during the day. I found it arising in really unexpected ways. I was having a lot of unpleasant experience once, and it disappeared. And there came this huge sense of loss. It's surprising, (laughs) but it can happen. And, you know, who knows what that loss may be for you? You know, it may be loss of a mind state. It may be loss of your favorite walking place. Maybe loss of some article of clothing that you put in the laundry. In any way it comes, when that loss is there, let your heart be vulnerable. Be present. We really need to see in our own experience the constructs we have around experience that keep us from touching into this truth. This is a teaching from Ajahn Chah. Conditions all go their own natural way. Whether we laugh or cry over them, they just go their own way. 
and there is no knowledge or science that can prevent the natural course of things. You can get a dentist to look at your teeth, but even if he can fix them, they still finally go their natural way. Eventually, even the dentist has the same problem. <laughs> Everything falls apart in the end. So relationships, the aspect of an experience. Can we be conscious in this, entering into relationship, not so enchanted by the promise of everlasting happiness, but with the wisdom of knowing that this too is impermanent. Another aspect of impermanence that we can often struggle with is in relationship to our bodies. These bodies have a strong sense of self with them. My body, the way it is, an image of this body. And if when we were young, we attached to the idea of having young, beautiful, healthy body, when change happens, it's going to create suffering. You know, I mentioned my brown aging spots. I also remember being uh, young and finding a stretch mark, my first stretch mark. I was horrified. What is, I went to my mother, Mom, look at this. What is this? And there was a sense that ah, this was a tragedy. <laughs> and there's so many ways that our bodies will change. And this, this, if we have the right attitude, is a teacher. It's here to instruct us. But of course, you know, our culture doesn't help us with all of the advertisements that are around. I was reading an advertisement once that said, you don't have to grow old. (laughs) And then we have all the anti-aging products against aging. You know, and then we think, you know, we... Sometimes, especially in, uh, you know, through health foods and kind of the new age culture, it can, not to diminish everything, but (laughs) there can come this belief that if we eat the right foods, if we, you know, exercise the right amount, that this body will be preserved in, you know, its fullest form. And yet... It's not the truth. You know, we ha- there's been actually great doctors who have had, you know, amazing diets that they've professed and have died of cancer. And that's not to mean that there wasn't something helpful in what they said. But, you know, we to perpetuate the myth that we can defy this aging process, that we can defy death even if we get all the right ingredients isn't helpful. And just is going to set up a lot more struggle in our life. And this aging process that we go through, that if we view it with the right attitude, you know, when you see another wrinkle, when, you know, another part begins to sag, whatever it might be, (laughs) uh, look at the reaction. 
is it okay? No. <laughs> we got the response. No, it's not okay. Be with that. You know, this is life speaking to us. Can we listen? There's wonderful role models in the world that present, you know, something else than what the advertising world does. Uh, one person was Sri Nazargadatta, a sage from India. And he was once asked, what's it like to be an old yogi? He replied, said, oh, I just watch the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. And he roared with laughter. We won't roar with laughter if we only have an intellectual understanding of impermanence. But when we see this is the nature of this body, this is what bodies do. It's the way things are. It's okay. It doesn't mean we don't take care of this body, but its nature is conditioned. The natural world has so helped me with this. You know, even as a young child, when you know everyone was denying suffering, uh, going out into nature, and just seeing how there was decay, there was sickness, death, there was impermanence, and it was the way of things. Nature just holds it with a grace, a grace that is possible for us when we have understanding. We find that when we contemplate impermanence, when we come close to this, it's natural that we will also contemplate death. They are so linked, birth and death. This is what we see. You know, we see in our practice, birth of a breath, death of a breath, birth of a thought, death of a thought. And we see it in the greater picture of life. That what we're involved in is a dynamic process. It's not static. This goes from everything on the largest level in life. We're just looking at the cosmos. I love opening my mind up to the stars, the sky, space. There's something about it that just opens some small perception of a, you know, this little I, me, mine. Just opens. And there's this, you know, whole cosmos that's always changing. You know, stars are, are dying. New galaxies are born. You know, it's in this state of flux. And, you know, right down to just microscopic. Things are being born and dying all the time. His Holiness the Dalai Lama said about the awareness of death, awareness of death is the very bedrock of the path. 
until you have developed this awareness, all other practices are obstructed. We can have such deeply seated fear about death that we don't even let the mind come in contact with. When we touch into it in our lives, we simply move on. We fill up space. We don't let it be touched. Just listening to myself talk tonight, you know, I can just see why when we come on a retreat, sometimes it just feels enormous, some of the feelings that we're having. And these are ones that we have been so skillful at avoiding. You know, that, but we're allowing them to surface, but doing so with awareness. So, <laughs> that was a sidetrack. Getting back into the death and how this is what happens. This is, you know, being born means that one day we will die. It's so hard to grasp. You know, we, we just this sense of we've only known the world with us in it. I remember being a, a small child, actually, and saying to my mom, Mom, what was the world like before I was born? The interesting piece was I then tried to imagine the world without me. <laughs> but, it, we, you know, we just, even though we see death around us, it's still really hard to get that this mind-body experience, as we know it, will cease to be. I was watching a news program where a soldier was being interviewed and he was part of uh, a division of the army where a lot of his uh, peers, a lot of people he was with, had been killed. And so he was asked how he was able to cope with this. And he replied by saying that the only way he could continue to go out and fight each day was to believe that it would never happen to him. And, you know, we, we just, it's not unique to him that we often live believing it will never happen to us. And so, you know, Annie mentioned it last night as a, a reflection that's helpful to bring up um, energy in our practice, that to reflect on death can bring up energy. It also brings us in contact with whatever feelings we may have around that. And I don't know about you, but I certainly would rather face that now than be on my deathbed and suddenly have these fears surface. And that's why our practice can be so helpful. You know, it can really help us to have the tools to face death without fear. Or if fear arises, to have some sense of how to be with that. There's another form of death that in my own life, I came to see seems even stronger than the fear of my own death. And that is 
<laughs> the death of this dearly loved planet. It's hard for me to really be in a place of acceptance of this. That, you know, when I think of loss of my own life, that's one piece. But this planet, which is home to so many forms of life, that has nourished, sustained. And to think that one day that this too will be gone. It's been a very powerful reflection. One time after the events of 9-11, I was sitting and quite in a state of, of shock. And I did something that I often do when there's uncertainty, when I'm looking for you know, something that will help me frame my experience in some way. I opened up the suttas. And as I opened up the suttas that day, my eyes fell down to this line that said, it was the Buddha speaking, and he said, one day, O monks, this world will end. When I read that, I slammed the book shut. You know, it was so close to the bone that day. I wasn't ready to go there. And, you know, I just kept sitting there, kind of in a state of shock. Uh, And then, you know, feelings arising. A little while later, I said, okay, I'll open the book again. You know, maybe I'll be more encouraging this next time. So I opened the book to a distinctly different spot. And uh, my eyes fell down again. And the question was being asked, what happens when a world system ends? It was a bit of a moment of disbelief right then. And then the response was, beings are usually reborn in the deva realm of streaming radiance. (laughs) Sounded a little more promising. (laughs) But what I was struck by in reading those was again this sense of a matter-of-factness, this a mind equanimous in the face of that. And it reminded me of uh, the Zen master whom I've practiced with, Hogan Daido Yamahata. Um, One day in speaking with him, he said, we live on a dying planet. And when he said that, he said it with full equanimity. And he didn't say it by way of a statement of doom and gloom. And he didn't say it by way of resignation. He is a man who is fully alive. He expresses compassionate action in the way he lives his life. He has petitioned the Japanese government he um, he's an activist in his own life. But he could say, we live on a dying planet because he has this understanding that all conditioned things are of the nature to decay. After 9-11, and reading these couple of suttas, very soon after I found myself on intensive retreat. 
and you know was just really in this place of feeling how uncertain life is how quickly conditions can change in our life my own disease distress with that and i came across another sutta which was so helpful to me it's called simile of the mountain and the question was posed what should one do when from all directions death is approaching when you know sometimes in our life we may have this sense death is all around us it's coming what should what should we do and the answer was as aging and death are rolling in on you what else should be done but to live by the dhamma to live righteously and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds we live in accordance with the way things are honoring this moment living with a wholeheartedness that tends to this moment but understands that the experiences the circumstances are all subject to change so our practice helps us to see this truth of impermanence in any moment it reveals itself shows itself letting it become a deeply rooted and realized understanding that becomes the basis out of which we live our life when we deeply understand it we are not left grasping clinging trying to make permanent that which it's by its very nature is impermanent we're no longer trying to do the impossible one yogi once said to me you know it's as if i've been betting on the wrong horse all my life you know and that's all it is and we come to know the mind of non-grasping non-clinging this is again from ajahn chah when the mind starts to realize that all things without exception are by their very nature uncertain the problem of grasping and attachment start to decrease and wither away if we understand this the mind starts to let go and put things down not grasping onto things and attachment can come to an end when it comes to an end one must reach the dharma there is nothing beyond this we come to know the peace of the non-grasping mind
So this teaching that comes from many great masters that have hammered it into us, can we look towards the truth of it in our own experience, moment by moment, And this is from Patro Rinpoche again. Impermanence is everywhere, yet I still think things will last. I have reached the gates of old age, yet still I pretend I am young. I could really relate to that. <laughs> Bless me and, my, and misguided beings like me that we may truly understand impermanence. Let's sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the truth of impermanence and the liberation that it leads to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.